This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication, which is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Madeline Carvalho Lanciani. She traveled from suburban Dayton, Ohio, to New York City as a young woman with dreams of being an opera singer. Now she owns the famous Duane Park Patisserie in the fashionable Tribeca district of New York. March is National Women's History Month, and the theme this year is Nevertheless, She Persisted, honoring women who fight all forms of discrimination against women. Madeline, as you will hear, is truly a study in persistence and the embodiment of this theme. Let me begin this story with full disclosure. I went to high school with Madeline. We shared some classes together and were friendly with each other, but didn't really know each other that well. We both grew up in a small suburban town of Vandalia, Ohio, just north of Dayton. However, as with many people, upon graduation, we went our separate ways and didn't reconnect again until our 50th high school reunion. When we did, I learned of her fascinating life and her amazing grit. Madeline was one of five children born to Portuguese immigrants. Her father, Joseph, came to this country when he was 17 and her mother, Maxine, when she was 10. During World War II, Joe was a navigator on a B-17 flying fortress, but in 1943, his plane was shot down behind enemy lines, and he spent the next two years as a prisoner of war in Stalag No. 3. Maxine spent her war years building tanks, being her own version of Rosie the Riveter. Madeline learned a great deal from her parents, who arrived in America as poor immigrants. My parents were immigrants from Portugal, and when we lived in Ohio, there were no Portuguese people around us at all. Right. <laughs> Tom, I remember when we were in high school that some of our classmates didn't even know where Portugal was. I, I bet that's so, true. Yeah, anyway, my parents, you know, came here poor. There were no opportunities in Portugal in their countryside. My parents understood that and understood most of all the value of education. So that was instilled in all of us. Education is the key to upward mobility. The other wonderful thing I got from them is this kind of self-sufficiency. No one's going to do it for you. You are responsible for your own life and your own future. And don't expect anybody to do anything for you. You do it for yourself. As a young girl, Madeline was determined to grow up to be a singer especially an opera singer, even though she had never seen an actual opera and didn't do so until she went to the Conservatory of Music at the University of Cincinnati. Well, from a fairly early age, I think the time I was seven or eight, I wanted to be an opera singer and started studying voice 
when I was, what, 12 years old, 13 years old. And yeah, I wanted to be an opera singer. I, I actually never saw an opera until I got to Cincinnati, but I had listened to them and I just was, you know, always in love with the sound and the, and the passion and the drama. That was it. So decided to pursue my dream. To make her way through school, however, she worked in summer stock musicals around Ohio, and then it was off to New York to pursue her musical dream. I wanted to be an opera singer, but I liked performing um, any kind of singing. And uh, after opera, it was musicals. So I had actually been working through college and during the summers singing musicals with Kenley Players. Kenley Players was a summer stock company that did at the Ohio Circuit, and they did three cities in Ohio, Dayton, Warren, and Columbus. After I graduated from Cincinnati, I did a stint with Kenley Players that summer, then got home after the last show, packed my suitcase, and told my parents, well, I'm going to New York. (laughs) So I did. (laughs) It was a tough life in New York. Singing jobs were sporadic, mandating day jobs to pay the rent. I needed to be in New York because it was the center for the performing arts industry, both in musical theater and in opera. So I got here with every intention of following that dream. And how long did you follow it? I want to say a few more years. I got to New York in the era of rock musicals, when rock musicals really hit Broadway, hair, Oh, Calcutta. And I wasn't trained to sing rock music. In fact, I still sound dopey when I sing rock music. So um, there wasn't much work for a girl who was trained in opera and classical music um, on Broadway. So I would audition and get um, roles in road shows. They used to call them bus and trucks, where you literally were on a bus going to little cities in the Midwest. And I didn't want to do that anymore because I I loved New York and I didn't move to New York to get on a bus and go tour in Idaho. So I, you know, tried my best to get as much work as possible here. I sang the role of Carrie Nation in a musical version of the temperance play, The Drunkard. And the music was written by a then unknown, um, talented person named Barry Manilow. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Oh, my. You know, you worked wherever you could get work. Right. And, uh, you know, most struggling singers, actors, dancers, you know, you, you got work wherever you could. But that's not very rewarding long term. No, no. I was just going to say, it doesn't pay the rent. (laughs) Yeah, right. That's basic. <laughs> or or it doesn't even pay your tap dancing shoes or your lessons or your coaching lessons. Most of this kind of performance work, you know, paid little or, or nothing. You did it for exposure. You had agents come and see you and blah, blah, blah. So I needed to pay my rent. Madeline is a survivor, and she also is creative. Besides singing and a day job, she decided to start baking at home, in part to relax and also to help pay the bills. I had day jobs, just like everybody else. And for my hobbies, I used to come home to the apartment and I started baking. Baking small things for a local food store in Greenwich Village. I lived downtown. 
Right. And, you know, in the 70s, natural foods and whole foods just started to make themselves known. And handmade was considered, you know, uh, cool. The things that I made for this little food store were, in fact, so well-received, they kept selling them out. And I made little tea cakes and breads and jams. It was kind of rewarding to have someone like your product that much. So little by little, I kept baking more and cooking more and going to auditions less. Soon she decided to follow her passion of baking and cooking. But how would she make that transition? Well, once again, it wasn't easy, but Madeline was resilient. The proverbial light bulb went off in the head and went, (laughs) hey, you know what? You're spending more time on this other thing, and you love it so much. Why not just try to do this, follow this passion? Making, um, you know, loaves of bread and jams and homemade cookies for this little shop in Greenwich Village was also not going to pay the rent. It was just not enough of it. So I decided to start looking around on how to learn the business of food and baking and learn how to do it professionally. So I thought about applying to the Culinary Institute, but um, d- decided I couldn't go because the tuition was as much as the college tuition that I had just started paying off on student loans. So right. basically, I couldn't afford to go. I couldn't afford to incur more student loan debt. So I decided to try to find places in New York to get an education. You know, they didn't have the culinary schools back then. So I enrolled in a nighttime program for Food Trades High School. was the only female. It was uh, taught by a wonderful old Swiss master baker, conditorer, they called them, but somebody who knew all the aspects of pastry and baking. And um, he thought I was pretty nuts, (laughs) Um, but he didn't discourage me. In fact, he kind of took me under his wing. Her instructor encouraged her, even though she was the only woman in the class. But after graduation, when she had to look for a job, she ran into a stone wall. After I graduated from the nighttime program, he, Conrad Stingle, sent me out. We went out. I went out and tried to look for a job. Well, that's when I found out that I had all of these skills now, but no one would hire me. Because you were a woman? Because I was female, yes. In those days, it was not against the law, so I point blank got turned down. Early 1970s. This was 1973, 74. Gotcha. Totally turned down. We don't, A, we don't have women here. Oh, well, well, we don't have women here. Well, there's no bathroom for you. Well, there's no place for you to change. Well, we just don't hire women. You know, I kept getting rejected, (laughs) rejection after rejection. And I kept thinking to myself, I had never, you know, it just never occurred to me that I couldn't get a job because I was female. Never crossed my mind. I thought, oh, my gosh, what's the matter with these people? I can do the job. And then I would sometimes just plead with people, well, let me just show you I can do the job. And Nope, nope, nope. Madeline's tenacity and resilience, however, persisted, and she talked herself into a job at the Plaza Hotel in Manhattan. But she had to work for free for the first four or five months to prove herself. She was the only woman in the kitchen out of 99 men, and her story is one of travail and triumph. 
one day I was talking to the teacher, Conrad, and sharing all my experiences. And, and he said, you know, you should go to the Plaza Hotel because the pastry chef there is a young man and maybe he'll just like, you know, let you like learn. So I did go there and uh, the pastry chef was a man named Joe Lanciani. And uh, yes, he was a, a younger guy. He wasn't one of these older chefs. He said, yeah, I could hang out in the pastry shop. He, he couldn't hire me, but I could hang out. And so that's exactly what I did. And I started to hone my skills even more. Eventually, Joe saw that I was talented and he went to the executive chef and said, hey, you know, this, this, this girl, called me a girl, this girl has some talent. I, I, we, we could really use her. Well, the executive chef wasn't convinced at all because there were no women in the kitchen at all. It took four months, four or five months, for the executive chef to realize that, A, I could do the work, and B, that I was not going to upset this kitchen of 99 men. Yes, they did not have a bathroom for me. They did not have a locker room for me. I had to go up four floors to change and use the bathroom in the housekeeper's locker room. But to me, that was a small price to pay for being in this fabulous laboratory where I could learn as much as my mind could absorb. So after four or five months, they were able to hire me. It was a union shop. They had to wait for someone to leave. Right. Uh, so they were able to hire me, but not in pastry. They only had a job opening in the kitchen, in the cold food department. Well, I thought that was just dandy. So the more I could learn, the better. So I took that job. And eventually, the executive chef and the sous chef of the Plaza Hotel crafted a, an apprenticeship program for me. And they put me in every station of the plaza over two and a half years. Oh, my. And I learned cooking, butchering, roasting, sautéing, fish butchering. I learned every phase of cuisine over two and a half years. But in that period and of time, you were still the only woman, right? Yes, I was. It was an experience like no other. Half of the people and the half of the men in the kitchen did not want me there. Maybe it was more than half. I don't know. They did things to me that they would be in jail for now. You mean harassment I, type things? Harassment, assault hazing, type things. And assault type things, yeah. yes. Da- dangerous things. Some of it was hazing to be sure I could take it, take the heat of the kitchen. Sorry for the pun, but it's true. And some of it was downright harassment. They wanted to drive me out. They didn't want me there. What did that make you feel like? Did that make you more determined or or discouraged, or did it depend on what day it was? No, absolutely. All you have to do to get me to do something is to tell me I can't. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. (laughs) The little rebel in me. (laughs) So so (laughs) the more they did that, the more you said, I'm sticking around. Yes, yes. Yes, exactly. So you did that um, for two and a half years, then what? Well, um, by the time I left, I have to tell you that uh, I, was pretty, uh, I was pretty well received then. I think all the men 
201 were, were, were sorry to see me go. Um, I kept my mouth shut. I kept my head down and my eyes open. And um, I never cried. Not, not once. Not in front of them. Not in front of them. Just as an aside here, kitchens are run a little like armies like a, a troop or a platoon or whatever. And, you know, for better or for worse, it really, I still believe it, the kitchens need to be run that way. There's a definite order of command. There's a definite chain of command. Everyone has their skill set that they need to, you know, de- develop and pay attention to. And you have to be able to, like, at a moment's command from the commanding officer, the head chef or the sous chef, be able to execute what your skill set is very quickly so that the whole thing comes together and that a diner gets what they want. I understood that it needed to be kind of like an army, but just like in the armies, in the armed forces nowadays, you can go too far with the hazing. You can go too far with the harassment. That's what, you know, happened to me. After learning the rest of the phase of the kitchen, all the different phases of cuisine, I just fell in love with it. And I loved cooking. And I loved cooking on the line. With mm-hmm. my save the line being, you know, where really all the action is at the last minute. Right. Finishing off plates and plating things. And along the way, Joe Lanciani and I got married. Oh, oh, oh just <laughs> along the along the way. How, along the way. <laughs> how high did you rise in the level at at the plaza? Well, I, I became the chef of the of their famous palm court, where the the famous teas and the brunches are served. That was a pretty big feather in my cap. I was the the first female, of course, to ever have that position. Uh, I remembered vividly many times customers uh, who would come in for tea or or brunch at the very famous palm court. And I, and many times I was out in the dining room or on the buffet line, actually making omelets or slicing the salmon. And I, you know, remember so often that, you know, a customer standing in the line waiting for me to slice the salmon very thinly and put it on their plate would look up at me and their mouth would drop and they go, oh, you're a girl. <laughs> <laughs> yep, always have been. Madeline and her husband, Joe, finally left the plaza and started their own place in Greenwich Village. Once again, resilience was necessary. We had originally decided that we were going to do a restaurant, that I would do the cooking, and Joe, who always stayed in pastry, would be the pastry chef. When we decided to go off on our own, I started studying the business of opening a restaurant and discovered that the mortality rate of restaurants was about 90%, but that the mortality mean failure rate, sorry, right, mortality right, rate. Right, the right, failure right. rate of restaurants in the first year was 90%, but the failure rate of bakeries in the first year was 10%. So to me, that was a no-brainer, especially since we were financing this with our own money that we had saved. Right. And I said, well, Joe, you know what? We're not going to open a restaurant. <laughs> we're going to open a bakery, and I'll just go back and learn pastry again, <laughs> which is what we did. We'll be back after this message. At the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University, students and faculty aren't just ready for change, they're hungry for it. 
The Scripps College was awarded $878,000 by the Ohio University Innovation Strategy Program for an immersive media initiative that will allow students to become skilled leaders in immersive media, especially virtual and augmented reality. The college's Game Research and Immersive Design Lab will serve as the hub for the initiative and provide several million dollars worth of gear, processes, intellectual property, award-winning scholars, and partnerships for the project. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. The bakery was a big success, but not their marriage. Madeline and Joe got divorced, both got remarried, but remained business partners until 1988. Madeline's second marriage produced her two children, but it was a tough marriage on her. In various ways, it was an emotionally destructive marriage for Madeline. It was tough. And I ended up being a single mother when the kids were three and six. <laughs> so you ended up being a single mom while you were running a, a business. And yes. uh, then after the divorces, you rose again. Talk about that. Yes. It was a tough, mar- tough on me marriage. Um, I ended up with no job and not even a checking account. Instead of spiraling down any further, I, you know, happily one day, I guess, woke up actually and said, you know, this is no way to live. I've got to get out of this marriage. Uh, My children cannot grow up believing that this is how a family should function. With two small children and no money, it was tough for Madeline to break away and start over yet again. But she was determined to be a successful businesswoman and a successful mom. Resilience reigned one more time. I just uh, went back to my old baking skills. I found the place where I am now in 1992. It was an empty warehouse, didn't even have electricity. But the landlords were looking for a tenant, and they offered me a really, really good deal on the rent to build a bakery there. So I did. I borrowed money from my family, not very much money, borrowed money from the family and called upon my old clients from my previous bakery to support me again, catering clients that I used to uh, work for. And little by little, it grew. It's been a huge success. I mean, you, you've you had write-ups in absolutely every major publication. Your business is thriving, and you even went on Chopped in 2013 to, to compete, got more advertisement for your business. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 you, you've tried every angle possible, have you not? Uh, oh, yeah. And by the way, I won Chopped. That's right. I needed that that (laughs) $10,000. You were the chop champion of sweet surprises. Yes, I was. And I think at that point, I I think I was their oldest competitor at that point. I love a challenge. I will tell you, though, when the kids were little and trying to, you know, make a business and grow a business and raise the family, it's all about trade-offs. And my first job, I always believed, I know it sounds like a cliche, my first job was being a mom. 
I made trade-offs while the kids were growing up in that I controlled the growth of the business in a very tight way. It was very slow on purpose. I would turn down business if it interfered in a great way with parenting. Some people probably would have said that was dumb or it was what I had to do. It was right for me. And so, you know, once the kids got off on their own or launched, I was able to then spend more time concentrating on furthering the business growth. And, you know, that's what I've done in the past, I want to say, 10, 12 years, including the stint on shop, which was, yes, a great advertisement for this, for the shop. Madeline paved the way for women in her field while suffering multiple levels of abuse in the workplace and emotional turmoil at home. She has some words for other women who might be facing similar situations. I don't think people should be silent and take abuse. But I think anyone, male or female, needs to assess where they are within any given situation. If they feel they're being abused, I think the thing to do is to confront it head on. Maybe not necessarily, you know, via a lawsuit right away, right. but confront it head, head on. Sometimes I think if uh, an abuser, if they are actually confronted, I don't want to say a quiet way, but in a, in a calm way about what their behavior, the effect their behavior is having on the person being harassed or abused, Sometimes that, that actually can open up a person's eyes to thinking, oh, geez, I wouldn't like it if somebody were doing that to me. Now, I'm not saying that is effective in all cases, but, you know, it's worth a try. It's worth the effort to say to an uh, abuser, look, you know, that's making me feel threatened or unvalued or whatever. How would you feel if you did this to your daughter or so-and-so, or if somebody was doing this to your daughter? I don't know. It's worth the dialogue. Instead of just quietly fuming, it's worth the dialogue always. Best of luck to you. Continued good luck. Dwayne Park is is just doing fabulously, uh, and uh, thanks for talking with us. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Tom. Today, we've been talking with Madeline Carvalho Lanciani, the owner of Duane Park Patisserie in New York City, and a woman who has persisted against the odds her whole life. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, at Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it. If you have questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. 